Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. And we're joined today by naturalist and author Nick Gates. Hello, Nick. Hello, Neil and Vic. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, thanks for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure. It's great to have you on, finally. (laughs) (laughs) um, We've we've been talking to Nick about coming on, I think, pretty much since we started, haven't we? (laughs) Certainly started last year anyway. Um, But we finally got sorted. Same with poor Jack. He took a while to come on as well. But... We're going to start the show with our traditional start, I suppose you might call it, um, our sightings. So, Nick, as the guest, uh, you get to go first. Have you had any interesting wildlife sightings recently? I have, actually. Can I have two? Go for it, yeah. You can have as many as you want. Okay, well, I'll yeah. do these first two, and then we'll see how, how good they are, see if they pass. Okay, then. So, <laughs> last night, I was driving along the M5. I had that magical experience where a barn owl ghosts the cross in the dark drifted right across in front of me from across the motorway um, into the verge on the other side. You know, I do know places that you can go and see barn owls, but every time you have a chance encounter with a barn owl is very special. And it, I mean, it's, it, it was sort of quite bittersweet because it flew so low that if I'd been a lorry, I don't think it, it would have stood a chance. And you can see why our owls get hit on the roads. But that was that was really special. And then the, the other one is that when I got in this evening, I checked my pond. And yesterday, my pond was frozen solid, as I'm sure most ponds were across the country. Um, in fact, the last few days, it's had a, a bit of a scattering of snow on top of that ice. But this evening, I went out with a torch and checked the pond. The ice had melted. And there was a female palmate newt with her back legs clasped together around a bit of the willow moss and she was laying binding her eggs into the uh, wow. into the vegetation so as soon as that ice had melted she was straight into egg laying well that means she's mated already doesn't it so that's yes well, that's, that's quite early i know it's not ridiculously early because you're in the southwest but that's still quite early isn't it yeah so they must yeah, have been but... you know displaying and mating under the ice over these last few days which is extraordinary to think really but then yeah she's She's already started, so it begins. That's that's the sort of one of the first signs of spring for me. Seeing the newts egg laying, lovely, quite a yeah, treat. I haven't seen the amphibians yet. <laughs> that's uh, Vic. How you how you doing with sightings? Um, I've actually only got one, and I saw I've got the the female frog back in my pod. She actually appeared uh, probably over a week ago now. Before we had this latest cold snap, she appeared. And I thought, oh, I really hope that she's okay. Because it turned out, I thought I had a thin layer of ice on my pond. Turns out the layer of ice on my pond was actually three inches thick. Whoa. And given that my pond is not very deep, I was I was concerned that the whole thing would actually freeze. And I went out last night just to have a look. And I saw, I saw her under the ice, but, you know, I thought, oh, please tell me she's not dead. Didn't look overly healthy enough. So, oh, please tell me she's not dead. So I just kind of gently put my finger in the water thinking that maybe the ice will have melted by now. And there was like half a centimetre of water and then there's still two inches of ice. And she's actually been underneath the ice the entire time and she's absolutely fine. And I popped out to check on her tonight and she's just sticking her head up out the water and that. So I'm hoping that a few more will start coming back now it's warming up and the ice has pretty much all gone from the pond so hopefully they're gonna start coming back so yeah that that's kind of my my only sighting really although i did find four pyramidal orchid rosettes at my parents house which is really cool very jealous so mm, me too. and that, that's about it so how about you i've actually been out the house but i'll start with what i've seen in the garden recently obviously like a lot of people in East England, I had quite a bit of snow at the start of this week. I think it started Sunday night, I think it was, or 
Saturday night. And by Tuesday, the Phil Fairs, which is the episode we did before Christmas, I believe. So go check that episode out to find out a bit more about Phil Fairs. I've started coming into the garden. Um, I had a couple in the hedge and then a few more. And I had to go out to do an errand. And there was loads flying over my village, flocks of them high up. But I had a few in the gardens. I never came down and touched the apples to put out for them. I'm grateful what's it's. I sat in my hide on Wednesday for a bit to try and photograph some of these lovely birds in the snow. And of course, although they've been posing in exactly the right spot all the time I've been inside and not able to do so, they didn't when I was in the hide because that's nature. I went out with my oldest uh, just around the corner, down the hill, uh, to go and see some horses. Saw loads of filfares and red wings and a few other birds. I'm pretty sure I saw a sparrowhawk as well, but it it was getting mobbed and it was a long way away. So I'm not so sure. And I popped out in the garden again today. I've been looking out the kitchen earlier and the snow had melted on top of the ice as my pond was frozen as well. And it looked like the sparrows are hopping across the water. And I, I, I made the joke that they were Jesus sparrows. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, that's my sense of humour, as you're all aware. Um, and, but the highlight, I think, the last week for me was uh, when I popped out in the garden just a few hours ago from when we were recording. Walked along, blackbirds singing in my hedge, doing the whole fluty springtime, summertime song, which was a bit confusing. I suppose it's got a bit warmer now, so <laughs> they're getting into action. There was a... I think it was a blackbird or a robin making a weird call. And then I was distracted that through my hedge, I could hear a crow doing that annoyed cronk it does when something's annoyed it. Um, turn round, and there's what I thought was three crows to start with. Then one of them made a certain buzzard call. <laughs> and yeah, the two crows were mobbing this buzzard quite low. And the buzzard pretty much skimmed my house as it went over my garden. So And the crows had left it alone by that point which is the closest I've been to a buzzard in my garden. So uh, I've had them high flying and way off in the distance. but. Uh, yeah, it's quite nice. If buzzers are still a bit of a novelty here in Essex. They're not that common still. Uh, well, they're a lot more common than they were, but they're still notable, I suppose, to see one in a day. But nothing spectacular, but nice. I always get a bit nervous when buzzards go over the garden because I've got I've got chickens, and when I'm allowed to have them out in the garden, I am um, always nervous that a buzzard could, if it wanted to, <laughs> grab one, my, my little bantams. Um, Oh, yeah. Still, still at the upper end of their prey scale, I suppose, aren't they? But, um, yeah. Yeah. They will take them, won't they? Just yeah. just have to be on guard. Just, I think, you know, I, I, I love having the buzzards over the garden, but I think the novelty might wear off a little bit if it, if it went off with my favourite <laughs> bantam. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I, th- I think it might. <laughs> oh, dear, yes. Uh, I have to admit, um, when we when we had a fox sniffing around in the garden and, and it was sniffing around the guinea pig cage, I had similar... Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's only young, so thankfully, so it's all right. We always get it safely locked up, so it was fine. We've had some follow-up and feedback from you guys, so thanks for that, guys. David Darrell Lambert, who's an ornithological consultant, he's the author of Birdwatch in London, and he's also a bit of a sound recordist. I think the first time I met him, he was trying to record some frakes or rails or something, I seem to remember. Lo- lovely bloke, um, but he's got in touch about tawny owls. Uh, he, he said, hi, Neil, some additional information on tawny owl. Uh, both males and females will make a song and a call. So he's heard several times birds singing and then bursting into call and vice versa. The variety of their calls and songs is big, at which I have learned from a long term deployment of nocturnal sound recording in woodland. The earliest I've recording hatching is of young in early December in central London, which is I think I mentioned, but that's nice to know the exact dates. I'll be just submitting some notes on this to be published this year. They have been recorded eating parakeets in London too. The central pairs 
seem to move around every five years or so. The Kensington Gardens don't appear until April. Very nice podcast. So, uh, well, as you said, nice podcast, not very nice podcast. <laughs> and he's also agreed to come on the show and talk about um, various, like London birding and some sound recordings. So that should be good. And we also had a review on Apple Podcasts from Essex Birder. I'm not sure if that's the same Essex Birder as on Twitter, um, but let us know if you are. Um, and he's called it Owls That and given us five stars. Great episode. And like all before, it really enjoyable. Even the topics I'm not so interested in. Rackets, spiders, no more. <laughs> so thanks for that. That's much appreciated, Essex Birder and uh, David. And of course, if you want to leave a review, please do. Especially if it's a five-star one. <laughs> Keep our ratings up. But now on to the main event, as it were. We've got Nick in. Um, so we should probably ask him some questions and stuff. But before we do, Nick, would you like to introduce who you are, what you do, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, thank you. Um, so um, I'm I'm Nick Gates. I'm a naturalist. I'm also an author. I'm a, a wildlife gardener. And my day job is I'm a producer for I Make Wildlife TV. So I've got I wear a few hats. Naturalist is probably the easiest one. I like to you know that sort of encompasses all of all of the things that I like to do. Let, let's kind of kick it off because you was it last year you published the book on orchards? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, it came out August so, August yeah. twenty twenty. Tell us a little bit about that because it's actually really it's about it's all about like a year in an orchard, isn't it? And so kind of where 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 did you start? I mean, where where did the idea come from? And how did you kind of get into it and develop it into? The so book? the the book is co-authored with um, a good friend of mine, Ben McDonald, and Ben and I met way back on one of a, one of our both of our first jobs in telly. Actually, was working on Springwatch. We were paired as story developers, and you know we we got on well and on that and became friends. And Ben had started a project at this orchard, which was basically started as a, a nest nest box scheme. He wanted to monitor which which rare birds were using it. And I came on board because he was keen to photograph and I'd done quite a bit of rigging of of nests and I build specialised bird boxes that have or can have cameras adapted inside them. And so the project started out as a bit of a photographic diary and a and a nest record scheme for the species that use it. And the reason that we chose that orchard was because the owners are phenomenal, you know, wildlife farmers. It is it is an orchard, you know, a harvested orchard. But it's also run incredibly sympathetically for the wildlife that lives there. And and as such, there are some species now, really very rare species, you know, BTO redlist species that um, still thrive in this orchard. So it started off, you know, we we never envisaged that it would turn into a book. It started off as just, you know, we'd visit, particularly throughout the nesting season, but across the year we'd visit. And we just built up this sort of wealth of, of knowledge of the life in it. And we, you know, these diaries and field notes. And we realised that actually it really had a very special story. And so we approached a publisher to to turn it into a book, which became the year in the life of this traditional country orchard yeah i told you before we started recording i've read the first few months and it's fascinating the amount of wildlife you you find there which brings us nicely on to megan shersby's question which is aside from the noble chaffer are there any other inverts that are very closely associated with traditional orchards yeah, well, that, you know, the noble the noble chafer is is the one that really wins the publicity prize. As it it often gets drummed out as the trophy species of traditional orchards, but there are quite a few others. There's a lot of species associated with mistletoe actually, and traditional orchards often carry quite a high mistletoe load. Modern orchards are very very aggressively remove mistletoe. There's a beautiful species called the mistletoe marble moth. There's a weevil, the mistletoe weevil, both of which are particularly associated with orchards because of its high mistletoe load. But then there are a number of other species that are associated just with those 
eating those fruiting trees. And there's one that I haven't yet seen that I'd love to, which is the red-belted clearwing, which is one of the day-flying moths. I mean, the, the clearwings are a beautiful family of moths. And I would I would love to see this uh, this particular one. It's, you know, very tapered black body, but with this gorgeous red band around the centre of its abdomen. That's certainly one that I'll be continually looking out for each time I visit the orchard. But the the, the diversity of invertebrates in the in the orchards are extraordinary and there are people that know far more about particularly moths and, and micro moths than i do who have found hundreds of different species in in that particular orchard and i'm sure you know the more the more that we search the more that we will find so are you are you still kind of continuing visiting and and recording at the orchard obviously not at the moment but is the plan to still be able to continue your work on it absolutely yeah you know it, it's gutting that we can't get up there at the moment we we chat to the owners on, on email and find out what's been going on there and i've actually just recently been building the next set of nest boxes to take up as soon as we can get up there but the, the plan is to just continue visiting it the same as you would a nature reserve or any other nice outdoor space you know we we've got a particular passion for this orchard because because of the book and because of the work that we've put into it and we're keen to continue our nest records there um, this year, we're particularly focusing on nest records for the, those red list species. So red star, spotted flycatcher, marsh tit, starling, and if we can find them, lesser spotted woodpeckers. So yeah, we'll be continuing for as long as I can imagine, really. It's a, it's a wonderful place just to go up and, and spend the day. You know, over time as well, it will produce some really good records of, you know, how important these traditional orchards actually are i don't actually live that far from nick because i'm in somerset and there's there's quite a few traditional orchards around here and a couple of them open up a couple of weekends of the year they normally open up that you can go and pick your own apples it is so nice to go down there during the day and just wandering amongst the trees the amount of life that is in there is just absolutely amazing it's, it's so wonderful to see well, it is if you love bugs and <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, completely. You know, the the bioabundance in a traditional orchard, you know, because of the way the trees are grown, because of the way the soils maintained, you know, to organic standards. Just the volume of particularly invertebrates as you move in the orchards is extraordinary, and that in turn leads to these species, which are very rare elsewhere, thriving. It's wonderful. You can just sit and watch the spotted flycatchers as they, you know, you know, they'll be sitting on a gatepost and they'll fly out on little aerial volleys and grab a ring or a, a meadow brown and, and take it back to their nest and you'll you'll see the same with the red starts coming back with a, a beak full of click beetles or something and you know it, these these species that you know in other places you've got to work really hard to find this is this is a farmed environment in which those species are thriving it's it's a very really special place yeah well one one thing i did find a bit of a contrast reading it is um, i spent a lot of time well my father-in-law still lives there but my now wife lived in tenham so which is in the center of the traditional apple orchard you know area of the country but they're using the more modern practices down there and i'd walk through you know past these fields of orchards and i remember one year they ripped up all the trees and replaced them with new ones so you haven't got the old wood but i'd still look around going well where's all the bullfinches where's all the bullfinches and then one day i was walking down there and there's going the tractor with all the spray bars and going all over the trees and and my question was answered because it would have killed any bird, insect or or life on those trees. And they, they, there was very little, sadly, in the modern orchards compared to the, you know what I was reading about in your, this wonderful orchard you were talking about. We actually drive through a couple of modern orchards each time we go up to visit this orchard in Herefordshire. And, and you're absolutely right, modern orchards are sprayed quite extensively, actually. But, you know, because it just, you know, those those are quite 
often you know, broad spectrum insecticides and they hammer um, so many different species of invertebrate. They're very bad for the soil. The result is that you've knocked out that food chain right at the right at the bottom and there's, there's no food left. There's no food left for those other, particularly the bird species that thrive in those traditional orchards. It's sad. But what we wanted to write about was, you know, just how powerful, a, you know, a, as, a, as a wild habitat a traditional orchard can be, um, even though it's actually a farm. And it's, it's, I think it just goes to show that you, the two can work side by side and thrive. Absolutely. You know, habitat restoration is essential. We all want to see the restoration of nature. You know, anyone, you know, farmers, conservationists, gamekeepers, there are you know, a really broad spectrum of people that want to see an increase in the, the, the health and biodiversity of the wildlife in this country. But we've got to be realistic. The majority of that land that it needs to happen on is farmland. So wherever possible, let's find solutions that work in, in farmed environments. And, and this is one. And I think kind of leads quite nicely on. We've had a, another question in from uh, Rhiannon Hoy from Facebook. Um, she said, it's exciting. This book's actually next on my reading list. So I think she's going to really enjoy getting stuck into that. She said, what was your favourite find in the orchard? Or or what was the one species that made your jaw drop when you found Ooh. it? So there were two. The one, the one that made... I think uh, this is a very much an hour answer from, from Ben and I. Our collective jaws dropped when we found it was the day that we were in the orchard. It was you know, late winter, early spring, and we saw, we heard first actually, but we then saw a pair of goshawks displaying above the orchard. And that was that was magical, seeing the male goshawks slowly flapping, his big white undertail coverts exposed. That was absolutely beautiful and something that you know you very rarely see they're you know quite a quite a secretive bird goshawk so it was a real treat to to prove that they were in the orchard and were using the orchard because we'd found the odd sort of pile of pheasant feathers or pile of wood pigeon feathers and we could never conclusively prove that it was a, a goshawk that had been responsible for that but when we saw the pair displaying to each other that was a real treat but my favorite find was a, a really an incredibly bizarre incident where I'd found a coltit nest in an old pear, and we don't often find coltit nests in in the orchard trees. They're more often found in the surrounding woodland. And I was really excited because it was the first time I'd found a coltit nest in in the orchard. And I went back to photograph it, and and I went and actually Ben and I went up to, together that day because I wanted to show him the coltit nest as well. And as we were approaching the nest, it was really weird. You know, normally you can see the parent birds going in with food passes or something. And there was nothing. The, the nest was quiet, you know, no alarm calls, nothing. And we got closer. And as it got to the point where I could see the entrance hole, there was a grey lump wedged in the sort of small 50p size entrance hole to the coltit nest in this, in this limb of an old pair. And I got close enough to sort of inspect it and it was a dead wood mouse properly wedged in the entrance to the to the nest hole and it was i mean fully, you know fully, i've never found anything like it before never found anything like it since it was just one of those things that you find through spending time in the field and the only thing that that i could conclude was that the wood mouse had climbed in eaten the eggs got too fat and got stuck on the way out i couldn't work out i couldn't envision any other way that it that had come to this demise but yeah it was it was well very dead and very stuck um so that that was and that that's sort of it was one of those things like i remember it so clearly um because it was so bizarre you're just sort of trying to piece together the the puzzle as to how it ended up in in that position but yeah that that was that was pretty crazy i did a few calculations that, that determined that if it had eaten the whole clutch of of coltit um eggs it ate about half its own body weight in calories 
So it was, if, it, if it had been a little too greedy, that's probably why it uh, didn't further its own gene pool by, um, by not being able to get out again. It's kind of one of those things you'd half expect to see in, in like a cartoon. Oh, it probably it? was. It was, you know, straight out of Winnie the Pooh, where, where Pooh gets stuck in, in Rabbit's house and he has to, when he's eating too, too much honey. It, yeah, it, was, it was very much a cartoon sketch, but it, it, very much I've got a photo of it and it's just to remind myself of quite how bizarre it was. Bizarre animal deaths. There's yeah. a whole um, thing about them. A friend of mine talks about like um, the way deer have died and stuff like that. And I mean, did you see that video the other day? Oh, it was going around of a a deer in, I think it was Japan. There was a deer and it had ripped the head off another deer and was walking around with it attached to its antlers. Oh, no way. And it was, it was, it was, I think it was part decomposed. It might have had to wait until the neck started to decomposose and then ripped it off. It's, oh, no. Uh, Insane, but there, there's all sorts of things. There's um, deer that have fallen and got their antlers caught in a tree and are just dangled there. You know, fallen off a cliff and they're just dangling from the tree and die. Yeah. The things eat the bottom half of them and stuff. We have to do a podcast on bizarre animal deaths, I think. <laughs> that one for the list. I'm not sure how popular it'll be. I've got a friend who found, um, I've got a friend who found a set of interlocked antlers. Uh, yeah. Where, you know, just the, just the antlers and the, and the skulls, everything else have been taken. But... Wow. I've actually, I've, I've got a photo for it quite a few years ago now from um, not that far from here and probably closer to you, Nick, um, of one stag actually stabbing another one straight through the skull. Um, and it's like the, the head is basically, it's kind of like pinned to the ground and this antler's just gone straight through it. And interestingly, I actually spoke to the wardens about it and sent them the picture and they said, well, weirdly we haven't had any dead stags this year. Oh, that's even, that's even weirder. So, it, so it, it must have survived. Yeah. But, I mean, this is, you know, it's clearly gone through because you can see it. Yeah, there's not much but... brain in a deer skull, is there? <laughs> it's probably gone through something less vital. They are pretty tough, the old deer. I think there's a lot of, well, actually, you know it's gone through the bone, for sure. I mean, there's quite a bit, is there a bit of flesh yeah. on the top in the rut? I don't know. I have to look. To look no, it's up. right by the eye socket. Oh, yeah, oh, lovely. Yeah, <laughs> so it should be near the brain. Oh, I can't. I can't view my deer anatomy. I haven't got a a map of deer deer anatomy in my head, so <laughs> I couldn't tell you. But oh, that's interesting. It's worth looking into that. But yes, so is there many deer on the site in the orchards? Yeah, yeah, we do. We do, um, I've done quite a bit of camera trap in there. We get we get fallow deer, roe deer, and the odd muntjac up there. Is is overgrazing an issue at all, or is it is it low enough numbers? Not really. Um, they're, you know the the deer the deer have got quite a I think I think around there the deer are shot the the numbers yeah. seem to be kept in check for just local venison trade I guess and they it doesn't seem to be the and, and the orchards are grazed as well there are you know at certain times the sheep are grazed under the trees in the orchard and then there's a few meadows which aren't grazed as well so it, overgrazing certainly doesn't seem to be an issue there I'd say the, the the deer make very negligible difference to the orchard trees themselves there's a bit of a browse line but that's as much from the pruning and the orchard management as, as from the animals any wild animals um, right. so yeah i think they seem to be at a, a fairly sustainable level there we, we have got another question from rhiannon hoy um she said has your study of orchards influenced the way you manage your own garden or outdoor space for wildlife well, as, as you probably see from my social media, I'm a huge wildlife gardener. I really enjoy it, learning every year. And the one thing that I really took away from the orchards was how important deadwood is, particularly in uh, urban parks and gardens. We're so accustomed to seeing everything tidied and manicured, and you very rarely see deadwood, particularly standing deadwood, but also deadwood on the ground, left 
And, you know, in a traditionally managed orchard, you know, deadwood is is a part of that process. And, you know, having having replicated that in my own garden, you, you can see it reaps immediate rewards with, you know, everything from invertebrates to small mammals to amphibians to reptiles using those different deadwood habitats that you can put in even a, in, a, in a small garden. So I say that's, that's the big thing I've taken away from the orchard is is value your deadwood and make sure you keep it because it's, it basically becomes a little biodiversity engine when you when you leave it in your garden. Well, living in an area of stag beetles, I totally agree. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's so many things use it. Isn't the the old saying, I'm not sure if it's 100% accurate, but half the life in the woodland lives in deadwood. Yeah, that's that's spot on, I think. Um, half the species or something, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the classic one is, you know, 350 species that use an oak tree, and over half of those rely on dead components of the oak tree. Um, that's invertebrates. So, so many different species are using dead components of particularly trees and um, and and deadwood is it's a really good habitat as well. Even just this pile of deadwood provides a home for for rodents. It provides a safe space for slowworms to hide. It provides a great place for newts and frogs and toads to to hide under and hibernate under. So, yeah, I think and home for mighty woodlice. No woodlice. Do like a woodlouse. Definitely an episode on them coming at some point. <laughs> um, have you seen the way woodlice, have you seen the way the female woodlice guard their eggs? I accidentally disturbed one the other day. You know, they form like a little tiny nursery and they just wrap a whole body around them. Um, I'd love to try and macro photograph that. I don't know if that's something either of you have seen or photographed. Yeah, I haven't. I've heard of it, but I've not seen it or photographed It's the first it. time I found it. I lifted up one of those bricks with holes in and she dropped out the bottom and unfortunately scuttled off and I saw her eggs there, so... I don't know how to try and... I thought they carried the eggs around. Yeah, I think it might be the way I lifted it up or something. No, it's the centipedes wrapped around the eggs I want. Oh, yeah, that's a beautiful photo as well. I'd love to, I'd yeah. love to see that. So let's stick with wildlife garden for a little bit. Well, what would be your top tips, oh, other than get a pond, because that's the obvious one that everyone should have in their garden anyway? Yeah. Every, <laughs> garden, every yeah. garden should have at least one at pond. At least one. Minimum, yeah. Minimum. <laughs> Minimum. Top, top tips for garden wildlife. I, I always roll out the same little mantra, which is that wildlife... Is if you want to attract wildlife into your garden, you've got to work out what wildlife wants. And there are three things that you know all species need. They need somewhere to feed, they need somewhere to breed, and they need somewhere to hide. Now, every single species that you're trying to attract in your garden, if you can give them one or ideally all three of those things, they'll they'll choose your your green space. And obviously, yeah, a pond is very regularly uh, rolled out as a really good way, but. You know, if you're trying to get solitary bees into your garden, well, what do they want to eat? They want to eat pollen and nectar. You know, where do they want to breed? Often they want to breed in some sort of tube burrow. So either that's a, a hole in a piece of deadwood or a hole in a, a piece of mud or a, a hole in a wall. And they need somewhere to hide. And in the case of solitary bees, they hide in the same places that they that they breed in. So for whatever your target species are, if you can find what they feed on, where and how they breed and where they hide, Give them all three of those things. There's a really good chance they'll turn up in your garden. Solitary bee hotels are awesome. I love mine. My, yeah. da- my daughter loves mine as well. She loves to, because they don't sting, you can just stand right in front of them and go, proper look in there. And They're fab. Yeah. And you get so many different varieties as well. But if you've got a variety of hole sizes, mm. you know, if you get sort of yeah. six mil up to about 10 mil hole sizes, you and you get all of the different parasites as well, the different wasps and, and the different um, cuckoo bees that come in and use it. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's so nice. fun watching them. I've, I've mine's pretty much just red mason bees because I've got it's just I've got a load of bamboo edging that I just left roll, curled up and shoved it on the side of my shed. Perfect. And I'd be surprised if I didn't have fifty to a hundred bees buzzing around at one point last spring summer. So that was a uh, rather nice. You get I get a few later on in the summer 
I think most of the holes are filled up. So yeah, <laughs> found amazing bees. But oh yeah, best thing. And of course, then they're buzzing around all my flowers. And it's really nice. And I go out first thing in the morning, and they're all lining up on my fence, warming themselves up for the day. And ah, oh, so and, cool. And and, and I go, you go out at night and shine the light down the tube, and they're all just sat in there waiting for yeah. the yeah. You know, just see the little oh, heads or little bums in there. See the, the, the little eyes peering yeah. out at you. I've got a lovely picture of one. To I read that they, those solitary bees hatch, you know, sometimes in the autumn, sometimes in the spring, but well yeah. before they actually climb out. Have you, have you seen, yeah. I wanted to get one uh, of those glass-sided ones to actually see that. Yeah, I think it depends. I know definitely um, the stag beetles and um, rhinoceros beetles and um, the chafers are all sitting underground at the moment or in their wood. Just waiting. As fully formed Already, adults. As adults, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, someone brought a load in to um, a show in December and they're all sitting there waiting in December to come out. Yeah. But uh, it's amazing, really, isn't it? Because you you, we, we think in our head, oh, they're sitting in the pupa just waiting. Nope. They're all sitting there ready to go. But um, they, they still don't tend to come out that early. You think they'd come out really early if it got really warm, but. Yeah. They seem yeah. to know. Yeah. Amazing things. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Oh, I've got a couple more questions, haven't we, Vic? Yeah, so we'll go go with the one from um, Michael Rogers first. Um, and he's basically asked, can our orchards help provide a natural solution to climate change and threats to our biodiversity? And if so, how? So I'll, I'll break that down into two parts. I'll answer the climate change one first. So the obvious answer for that one for me is buying locally grown fruit, be that in cider or as you know whole fruit, has got to be better than the current solution in the supermarkets, which is that you can go and look down the apple aisle and most of those apples are coming from Brazil, South Africa, you know, long-haul destinations across the world. Yet our climate is perfect for growing apples. You know, we have a superb... It's why Kent was called the Garden of England. It's why we had so many varieties of apple, particularly in, in you know, the last couple of centuries established in in the country so from a from a climate change perspective if we really embraced supporting our local farmers and buying our local produce then absolutely that can help with climate change because it will reduce the massive food miles that clock up when uh, when we're importing this this food that doesn't need to be imported from other countries and i suppose we've probably already touched on the, the threats to our biodiversity you know and the fact that orchards are Orchards are really the oldest na accidental nature reserves that we have. They replicate wood pasture, and wood pasture is a wonderful habitat. It supports masses of different species. And just because of the nature of having all of those different niches within it, from you know the wood, the deadwood, the pollen, the meadows that they support underneath it, the, the scrub around the edges, the massive hedgerows that you often get in a traditional orchard, that provides for a huge variety of species, including many of our red lists. So I think orchards are a great way of reducing biodiversity loss. And I think if we buy local produce from our orchards, that can help, you know, a small percentage of climate change. And I think, like you said, you know, we have we have so many amazing different varieties of apple in this country that we grow here in the UK that are far better than your bog standard, practically tasteless ones that you buy from the supermarket. I mean, to me, I'm actually, I'm a September baby. So it was a tradition that we've tried to keep going as long as possible. And we do still do it occasionally. Is that on my birthday, we would always go apple picking because by being a September birthday. And to me, there's nothing quite like taking an apple off the tree and eating oh, it. It's the best, isn't it? And it is. <laughs> and it is, you know, you just take it off the tree and you just... And you just bite into it. And to me, there there is nothing better. It's absolutely amazing. And you you just you don't see some of these 
amazing varieties that we have. I mean, you can't go to the supermarket and buy them, but certainly around here, some of our local markets and that farmers markets will sell them. But it's just amazing. And I think a lot of people just don't, I don't know whether, you know, if they've never experienced it, I think it's something they definitely have to experience. Yeah, I, I wholly agree. You know, you've got to work hard to buy, to find a, a good, good local organic apple, um, locally grown organic apple. But it's, you know, zero food miles, hugely supporting your local biodiversity and choose choose wisely where you buy your food from. And, and hopefully we can reduce this, you know, these huge losses in biodiversity we're seeing. Yeah, picking an apple off a tree and eating it, it must hark back to some sort of hunter-gatherer genes that we have, but it's a very it's a very rewarding um, event, isn't it? Well, as the youngest, I was the one that always got shoved up the tree yeah. as well. So. <laughs> I, was on, I was the one that always got to climb up to get the, the best apples because they were You get to the pick the best ones for yourself. Yeah. Well, I just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not coming down. Um, yeah. I'm not coming down until I finish uh, this. Um, but I think as well, like if you have the space, and you know, I know a lot of people have only got small gardens, but if you have the space, being able to plant a couple of your own apple trees... Because I know some of these places, they will actually supply apple trees as well. You can buy them. Um, And you can actually, you know, kind of create that little mini habitat in your own garden if you have the space. Absolutely. I mean, so I I read a cool fact when I was researching the book, which is that you only need six trees, six fruit trees to be to to call yourself an orchard. So, so as you can imagine, I quickly planted, or actually I counted up my fruit trees and added a couple more to the point where I had six fruit trees. So I've got my own tiny orchard in my, in my little North Bristol garden, but you can also grow fruit trees in pots. So if you're, you know, you can grow them so that you can take them with you if you're to move house. And then also, you know, community orchards, there are community orchards in almost every town and and city across the UK. And if there's not one, then, you know, get in touch with someone like the Orchard Project and you can see how to help set up your own community orchard. And community orchards are fantastic, you know, free fruit for everyone who, who takes part in the, the care and maintenance of the orchard. Uh, that's a great idea. I mean, I, I've seen a couple of them now. I know there's one in Glastonbury, but I know there, there's a few around. And I think it's a great way to bring the community together. But like I said, it's you can go there, you know, it's free fruit. You're also creating this amazing habitat as well. And what a lovely thing to have as part of your community. Exactly. And, and you'll meet like-minded people and it'll be a really nice legacy to leave, you know, in your community for future generations. You can squeeze a pond in there as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we would always go apple picking beginning of September. And if you get like a really nice warm day for it, the number of dragonflies you will see around an orchard as yeah. well is incredible. Yeah. yeah especially yeah, the migrant hawkers in September do get big. Mm. But that's the one thing you did find near the orchards in Tenham was a, Actually, that was next to the sewage works as well, so that might have been what was attracting the dragonflies. Um, so that near me, we'd I don't really know of any orchards per se, but there's just west of Basildon, for any, know the area, there's uh, the Langdon Plotlands, which was where people bought a tiny patch of land in sort of the 30s, 40s sort of time as like their little London getaway, getaway from London. Um, and then with the bombing of World War Two, people ended up living in these tiny little plots, you know, like the size of a room in a normal average house today, um, all crammed in on this hillside. But of course, they planted lots of fruit trees. And then when Basildon got built in, what that been, the 50s, I think it was, they moved all the people out and, you know, all these huts fell down. But the trees are still there. So there is sort of 50-year-old, 60, 70-year-old pears and apple trees and plum trees and lots of various garden plants all mixed in in this corner of Nature Reserve. And the, an old pear tree is where we get hornets for three years running. It's, it's unusual for wasps nesting in the same place. 
usually, but it's so good, this hollowed out tree, that there's uh, hornets in it every year so far. And and okay, they're not rare hornets, but it's it but they're eye level, they're nest at. So you can actually see them going in and out and they they buzz around your head if you get too close and absolutely amazing and make two certain wildlife talkers scream like little girls um, <laughs> who know who they are because they listen to this podcast um i've already shamed them publicly before so i won't do it again and a great <laughs> but, um, and a great ecosystem indicator you know if you've got hornets oh, that's yeah. a really good sign you know they're, they get a bad rep don't they but they're super passive relative to like oh. relative to wasps you know german wasps or whatever they yeah. and, and common wasps i think hornets are sort of super mellow they really don't mind you sitting next oh, to yeah. their oh nest they go in and out minimum focus i think is just over a meter and if i move too quickly they'd buzz around me but they wouldn't sting me yeah um the um (laughs) someone who knows who he is uh did get stung but he shoved a macro lens pretty much into the entrance so uh, (laughs) he he knew he was taking a chance and uh yeah he fully accepted but it was worth it for the shot he said so (laughs) but yeah unless you stick a stick in the nest hornets are pretty um pretty passive things as as i think we covered in the wasp episode Oh, mm. sorry, my. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! That is. There's a, um, one of my kids' tablets has just started playing music for no reason. It's off. <laughs> sure, that's not your ringtone. Yeah, Coca Melon. Oh, I don't know. I, I literally I didn't touch anything. It just started making noise on its own. Oh, that was. Uh, yes. Anyway, what were we saying? Oh, it's really. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to thought entirely now. Uh, that scared life at me as well because I wasn't expecting it. But anyway, yes, I think um, we have one more question, which is probably a good one to finish with, I think, which is from my good friend Richard Hing, and arguably the most important question of all. He basically wants to know if you have any recommendations for a good organic cider. Well, I do, actually. I've been, I've been really trying to taste, you know, whenever I come across a new cider at the moment, I've been trying it. And I would say that, of course, the, the very best cider is the one produced by by the orchard that we've written about, but that's only available in very small batches at the moment. So I would like to champion another local orchard and a local cider producer, Bushel and Peck. Uh, They're based in Gloucestershire and they've just recently been writing on Twitter about a new orchard that they've just planted, a new traditional orchard. All of their fruit comes from unsprayed orchards. You can find out about the varieties of apples that they're using um, in their ciders. So it's Bushel, B-U-S-H-E-L, and the plus sign, uh, Peck, P-E-C-K. I'd really recommend looking them up and giving their some of their ciders a go. And they do Perry's as well. Oh, there we go. That's the most important question. Cool. And just one last thing, because we, we do like to put our guests oh, yeah. on the spot occasionally. Have you got any questions for either myself or me? I have been following uh, Vic. I have been following your orchid updates very jealously uh, since you first saw it. So I would like to ask you how your, your orchids are doing, singular or plural. Uh, well, I do, I do have another rosette come up this year. So I'm hoping that that's going to flower. Sadly, only one. I actually had three rosettes last year, but only one flowered. But I've had just the one come up this year. So I'm hoping that that will produce another beautiful flower stalk for me to photograph again this year. And then... The exciting news of the four pyramidal orchids at my parents. And they're, they're only about 20 minutes down the road for me. So I will be able to go and kind of visit and photograph them as well, which would be quite cool. Sure. I'm very jealous. I've been trying to get orchids established in my wildlife garden for a good few years now. And I've, despite picking off uh, bits of seed whenever I can, I've yet to see a rosette. So I scan the lawn carefully each spring in the hope that a new a rosette might appear. But um, no luck yet. Oh, my, mine appear pretty, I mean, these, I noticed these 
probably a few weeks ago now. So yeah, easily in January time, I actually noticed the rosette. Well, that's going really scary then. I've got you know all the others are up already. Obviously, you know nap, nap breeds haven't really you know, those lower leaves never really die off. Uh, you know all the vetches are starting to come up. My first tiny bits of yellow rattle. I can just see the, the tops of the heads of those. Um, the bulbs are doing really well. But yeah, oh, teasels, teasels are looking great out there actually. Rosettes and teasel are doing well. But I will go and give another scan just in the hope that you know one year it's going to happen where I go out there and I'm just going to find an orchid rosette and I can't wait. And that they'll be they'll be teeny tiny as well. Like mine, mine are hidden really well. I I know where to look for mine, and it's only because I knew they looked completely different and where they were that i found them because otherwise you wouldn't notice them so you have to really just kind of get down and have a good search okay how small teeny tiny sort of 10p size now the pyramidals are about 10p size my bee orc is a little bit bigger now but when i first found it it was probably no bigger than about 50p yeah cool well i will get down on my hands and knees and have a proper scour amongst all the plantains and everything that's down there and uh, report back if i manage to find one yeah good luck. thank you (laughs) well i think that's a good place to start to wrap up yeah, it's been very interesting. I've, I've certainly learned a lot there. Um, I look forward to finishing the book and I do recommend everyone go get it because it, it seems like a very good read to me. Um, but so, Nick, if people want to find you, uh, uh, where do they look for you online and places like that? So I use I use Twitter quite a lot. I'm at NT Gates on Twitter and I've just started trying to use Instagram a bit more and I'm, I think I'm the same on that, at NT Gates on Instagram. If you'd like to buy the book, um, there's a lot of great online retailers, such as NHBS and Little Toller Bookshop and various others that will happily post you a copy. Uh, all you need to do is just pay them. And, you know, uh, you know, Ben and I are delighted, you know, for, for every, every bit of support we get for the book because it all goes straight back into us putting our money into more bird boxes and, and more more nest records to sort of help help provide this data set, which we hope will last as long as we do. Oh, thanks very much, Nick. Not many much more news to tell you guys. One thing I will just put out there is... Um, I asked a question on Twitter. I've only had a bit of a response. That basically, this podcast started off as its life was me thinking, hmm, I should do a podcast on pond life, as some of you might already know. Um, and then realized there wasn't any, a wildlife, British wildlife podcast. That was just British wildlife. There were some more niche ones and there were some worldwide wildlife and conservation ones and birding ones, but not just general British wildlife. So I ended up doing that. But I was thinking the other day about, oh, should I really do some more? more niche ones of things like ostracods and ciliates and stuff like that people have never heard of which is what the idea was so if you would like to hear things like that um as well ostracods are super cool do let us know what you want want us to what you want us to do you know um it's always good to get a bit of feedback on these sort of things so uh, yeah that's about it from us so i guess it's goodbye from me yeah goodbye from me as well uh, we'll see you all next time bye bye take care everyone bye Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. Or if you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. This episode was edited by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.